What's up, world? Talcon here, and it's time for a, another book review. Today, we're doing How to Be an Anti Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. What's up, world? Talcon here, and it's time for another book review. Today, we're doing How to Be an Anti Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Okay. So I think the first thing that I felt once I started this book is that I felt forced to pick a side. Kendi wants to destroy the phrase not racist. And I think this is a necessary step if you're of the activist mentality. His intro really works to identify and bring attention to the neutral zone in the debate on race in this country. Talking about racism is tough, especially if you're being accused of being racist. And reading this book, you will definitely feel accused of being racist. But I'll say this, and this is true of a lot of books like this, White Fragility included. The authors don't act like they are immune to racism. They admit to doing it too. This book, I think, is, a close, is closer to my view of racism in America than most of the books I've read. That is, racism is treated like an American issue, not just a white issue or a white crime. He talks about racism in minority communities too, and I appreciate that. But this anti-racism term exists because people try to float in a neutral zone. They are quote unquote not racist. And my, my reading of the difference is that not racist is neutral and anti-racist is action. It deals in support, specifically support of policy. He talks about anti-racism in a dozen different contexts throughout the book. Each chapter is like a different context. One is like feminism, one's gender, one's um, maybe the body or something like that. But each context is different. And then he'll have a definition of racism and a definition of anti-racism, but apply to that different context. And in each context, it's it's defined as as in support of a type of policy. So we'll kind of start with definitions. And his first definition is racist versus anti-racist. So a racist in his book is one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. Anti-racist is one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. So the word inaction in the definition of racist attacks that neutral zone that I was talking about. If you float in the neutral zone and allow racist policies to pass or exist, or not protest them, etc., then you're racist. So that shows you how his definitions emphasize not only policy, but an activist mentality. The issue that I have with the book is when it implies an equality of outcome being representative of an absence of racism. I think his definition of racist and anti-racist policies clarify this point. So racist policy kind of sustains or supports inequity between racial groups. Racial inequity being defined as two races not being on equal footing. This equal footing, to me, is an outcome. Maybe one says, since 12% of the American population is black, around 12% of CEOs should be black. If that is what, is what he means, then I think you have to consider culture as a variable. Different ethnicities are going to, to want to do different things across large spectrums. He emphasizes policy throughout the book, and I think policy is important when discussing racial disparities, but I feel like he makes it the sole issue. 
This is why I think it's important for everybody to read somebody like Thomas Sowell. And I keep saying Thomas Sowell because he's on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Thomas Sowell is all about lifestyle choices and culture. He considers these very important variables. And I think you have to consider both when talking about fiction and racial disparities. You have to focus on policy, but you also have to focus on culture and lifestyle choices. Kendi seems to be responding to people who attack black culture. And I think he has a really good point there. People assume crazy stuff about black culture. They don't, they assume they don't like to read. They don't like to work hard. They have interests that outside the normal academic or lifestyle areas that garner success for the average person. This stuff has not been proven. People just say it and don't provide any facts and they don't get challenged on it either. I will say that Glenn Lowry often emphasizes the lack of fathers in households and he has percentages to back it up, but he's one of the few. I think Kendi's book is good because he addresses these assumptions that, pe that people are making about black culture and he has empirical evidence to, pack, to back it up. I always think about end states. What does right look like? What is a good example of an anti-racist policy in the last 10 years? I'm not saying that I have good answer for these questions, but Kendi does say something that addresses it on a psychological level. He says something like, an anti-racist society would be one where a person would not consider being a part of any race or born into any race as an advantage or disadvantage. Now, I think it's clear that there are advantages and disadvantages to being a part of different races. And I think a proper anti-racist society would undo that. And that is what I'll try to unpack as I continue to do videos on this book. There's a lot here. And I kind of want to take my time with this one because each chapter kind of has its own significance. And he makes Kendi, he's, a, he's actually a historian. He went to Temple. Uh, my brother's wife actually taught at Temple for a little while. Um, and I feel like historians are one of those areas that can be difficult in a similar way that literature is difficult. And by that, I mean, it's difficult to really define as at least a literature major, and it might be the same with history, historians, but define what you're supposed to know. Like I feel people, like people that are kind of math majors, are like math PhDs and math professors or economist PhDs and economist professors. There's a fundamental level in those fields, like there's a fundamentals, fundamental level in math that like every mathematician knows. But history and literature I think are a little bit different. Because there's like an infinite amount of stuff that you can know, and you can't know everything. And each person kind of considers different things in history and different things in literature as more important than other things. Because everybody has a different curriculum that they learn in junior high and high school. They learn different things in college. They take different classes once they go to college. So they come away from all that thinking different things are important. There's no like really collective consensus. Literature, I think, is a lot worse, though. Because history, at least you know, you're probably going to study the Civil War. You're probably going to study the Revolution, at least if you're in America. You're probably going to study the Civil Rights Movement. You're probably going to study, you know, certain presidents and things like that. Like, there's some things that you should know. Literature is different because it really is just dependent on where you are in the country, what your English teacher happens to think is important. And in a lot of high schools, you don't read more than four or five books in the entire time period. So people come away thinking, like, one person might think, oh, well, you should know Milton and just make that assumption. Another person might think, oh, well, you should know Shakespeare and just make that assumption. I find myself asking, what am I supposed to know? 
I guess it's just a lifelong thing. You're never going to know everything. You're never going to know enough. And I'm always afraid of that one student that knows a lot about one thing is like disappointed in me for not knowing whatever it is that they think I'm supposed to know. Whatever basic thing, like, oh, you don't know Samuel Richardson. I'm like, oh, who's Samuel Richardson? Writing every day or when I'm inspired. That's the next thing I want to talk about. So in the past probably two or three years, I've been keeping a calendar and I mark on it how many days I read by the hour and how many days I write. And it's really, and I think I got this from um, a master class that James Patterson did. Like he really emphasized writing every day. And it wasn't that I was taking it that seriously, but that's what I was doing at the time. And that kind of can encourage me to keep doing that. And it's not like I write a lot. It's like one to two hours every day. But when you write every day, I think you give up a little bit of something. Because when you write every day, one, you know that you're going to continue writing the next day. And then two, I think, it, I think you lose a certain level of intensity when you write every single day. Like back when I just wrote maybe like once or twice a week, I kind of approached writing with much more fervor. Now I do, maybe, maybe I do still like approach that way once or twice a week. But most days, I have to like make myself sit down in the chair and write. And once I'm there for like five minutes, I do a pretty good job. Like it comes, it, it, I definitely get excited about it as I'm sitting there. And this is what I always tell myself to ensure that I write. I always tell myself that I don't have to write a full hour. I just have to sit down and look at the page for two minutes. Look at the page for two minutes and see if I don't write down anything. And I always write down something. But anyway, like I always say, it's easy to complain and it's hard to be grateful. So do something hard today. And if you like this show, if you want to support the show, if you like these short little videos slash podcasts that I do about whatever I'm reading, or if you just like me, and want me to be happy, consider supporting the show by buying one of my books. If you're a poetry fan, then try The Love Mindset, a collection of about 100 poems that tells the story of a guy, basically me, in love with his neighbor. Story poetry. And like I always say, and I'll say it again, it's easy to complain and hard to be grateful. Do something hard today. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time.